many of you, and hopefully it's not super obvious now by the way I talk, but as many of you know, I went to the dentist this week and had all my wisdom teeth pulled out. It was quite the experience, and I ended up coming out okay with it. I, it was on laughing gas, so I didn't really know too much of what was going on, but uh, I was very, I want you to know I was very encouraging of the dentist, and I kept kind of putting my thumb up as they would take each tooth out. I do remember that, so... Uh, I won't go into that, though. I was thinking, though, about the qualifications that you need to be a dentist. You know, when you're getting that done and they're knocking you out, you kind of want to know what kind of training that person has had. And so I was wondering, you know, just to pull a tooth out, what all do you need? Well, obviously, first of all, you need a bachelor's degree um, from some kind of four-year institution. And then usually apply to go into some kind of dental school. Of the applicants who apply to go to some kind of dental school, usually only 45% of them are accepted. So not a very high acceptance rate for those who even try to get into dental school. You need a high GPA to try to get in. You usually need some references. You need to write usually a statement of purpose for your life and why you want to pursue this degree and why you're passionate about dentistry and helping people with their teeth after that, you have to pass a dental admissions test. You need to pass this test to be able to even get into the program. So once you get through all that, then you can finally get into dental school, where then you do four more years of training, and you do internships and certifications, and you pass more tests, and you begin working on your licensing to even become a dentist. And there's usually other training and other things that you have to go through before finally you can call yourself a dentist and I was thinking about that at how devoted you have to be to try to even become a doctor become a dentist or be involved in some kind of higher profession like that now you're usually rewarded by making a decent amount of money right but it takes some commitment we've been talking about in the book of Titus what it means to be a healthy church, what it means to be a healthy church. And on our passage this morning, Paul tells us that in order to be a healthy church, in order for Titus to have a community of believers there on the island of Crete that are healthy, that are well-ordered, that are established, he says they need to be devoted to good works. He says that a couple of different times. First of all, in verse 8, he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Then if you read the last couple verses of the chapter in verse 14, he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need. It takes a lot of devotion, according to Paul, to be zealous for good works. Paul says, if you're going to build a healthy church, Titus, you need to teach people to be devoted to good works and to doing good. But we often struggle to understand good works. We mentioned last week as we looked at the gospel and in Paul's explanation of the gospel in verse 3 through verse 7 of chapter 3, that we often get good works wrong. Some of us think that our good works earn us some kind of relationship or favor with God. There's plenty of denominations. There's plenty of people in life 
who think that their good can outweigh their bad, that something they could do on their own is going to earn them some kind of favor with God, whether it's baptism, whether it's communion, whether it's something they can do on their own. Some people think that God wouldn't send them to a place called hell because they've been so good in their life because they've done so much that was right and they get good works wrong because they fail to understand, like we talked about last week, that salvation is not by any works of righteousness that we could do in our own merits, but it's only a gift from God. Then there's other people who get good works wrong on the other side of things. They think because they're a Christian, because they're saved, that that's it, that they don't have to do anything else that's good, that good works obviously don't give us a relationship with God, so they are off the hook. And Paul says that's not right as well, so we need to understand good works. We need to understand what it means to be devoted to good works. And when we're devoted to good works, when we understand what good works really are, Paul says this is part of being a well-ordered, a healthy local church, a local church that lives according to what he has called sound doctrine. So what does it look like to be devoted to good works? Well, I think in our passage this morning, Paul gives us a couple of different examples a couple of different characteristics of what it means to be devoted to good works. First of all, if you're going to be devoted to good works, you need to focus on the gospel. You need to focus on the gospel. Look with me at verse 8. Paul says the saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. Now we see this come up several times in the pastoral epistles. In chapter 1 of Titus, the word of God is called the trustworthy or faithful word. He says, hold fast, the elder, the overseer, the pastor must hold fast to the faithful word. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners for who I am the chief. And he says, the saying is trustworthy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, the saying is trustworthy. And then he gives qualifications for the pastor or the elder. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, train yourself for godliness. The saying is trustworthy. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, as he speaks of suffering for the gospel, he says, the saying is trustworthy. So what does this mean? Why does Paul keep using this phrase? Well, the two words that are used to make up this statement, the first one is pistis, which means faithful. It means faithful or to be entrusted with something. And the second word is word or logos. So he's literally saying this is a faithful word. This is a word you can trust. Paul puts it on the ends of these statements, oftentimes either dealing with the gospel or dealing with some kind of qualification for the person who is going to preach the gospel. He says the saying is trustworthy. This is a faithful word. 
And so what is Paul talking about here in verse 8 when he says, the saying is trustworthy? Well, it can either talk about what's coming in front of the phrase, or it can talk about what's coming after the phrase. And I think he's talking about what he has just said previously before the phrase and his confirmation of the gospel. You see, last week we looked at verses 3 through 7. We said the gospel tells us the truth, doesn't it? The gospel tells us who we really are. And in verse 3, we realize that we're not very good, that we were not as good as we thought we were, that we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul is saying the saying is trustworthy, and you can count on the fact that you were not good, you were not righteous before your salvation. He's saying the saying is trustworthy, you can count on the fact that you're not saved based on your own righteousness. In verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He says, the saying is trustworthy. You can count on this. It's a faithful word that God is the one who enacts salvation. That God, through the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three of them work in perfect unison to provide and offer salvation to all of us. God planned our salvation. The Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and perfectly obeyed. God and offers salvation to us. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the one who gives us this washing of regeneration and renewal, and he pours it out on us richly. Paul's saying you can count on this, you can trust the gospel. It's a trustworthy statement. You know, there's a lot of things in life that you read that you can't really trust. There's a lot of news you read that you wonder. Is this really what is going on? You know, I'm a big NFL guy. I'm a big follower of the National Football League. And I've heard that sometimes these insiders will put out these rumors, maybe not because they're true, but because the coaches and the GMs and the players want these things out there to try to get the ball rolling or to try to get teams to trade for a certain player or think that a certain move is going to happen. It's hard to know who to trust in the world. But Paul says you can trust the gospel. The saying is trustworthy. The saying is faithful. Titus lived on an island where people are called deceivers, liars. Paul tells Timothy that in the last days that people were deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving others and being deceived. And we know that's happening today. Plenty for people in our world as well. Paul's saying you can trust the gospel. What I've just told you, God's saving work from start to finish, you can trust the gospel. But he's telling Timothy this for a reason. He's saying you can trust the gospel and the gospel motivates our good works. He says, and I want you to insist on these things we not only trust the gospel but we insist on the gospel as well 
This word I want, it's this idea that I have this desire for you, or I have something that I really am urging you, I need you to do this. It's a personal desire that Paul had for Titus to do in his ministry. He says, I want you to insist on these things. To insist not only means that you're confident in what you are saying, but you're being dogmatic on it as well. I had a couple of professors in college who were very dogmatic on formatting. They said, I don't care what your writing looks like for other teachers, but in my class you will use size 12 font, Times New Roman, one-inch margins, the header on the right side of the page, the title in the middle of the page, page numbers at the bottom. Everything is going to look perfect just like the example. And they said, I don't care what your writing looks like for others, but in my class you are going to do this, and if you don't do it, you're going to lose this many points on every paper that you do for me. And so guess what? I followed the rules, and I made sure that before I turned it in, I had size 12 font. I made sure everything was Times New Roman. I had the title in the middle of the page. And even for my students now, I try to give them different formatting guidelines that I insist on to teach them how to do that for college papers that they are going to write. You know, in a world that preaches tolerance and relative truth and folding on standards, there's some things in life that we should insist on. There's some things in life that we should insist on. I think I'm a pretty nice guy most of the time. My students might say something different, but there's some things that I insist on, especially when it comes to the Bible. Paul's saying, Titus, you don't have a choice. You need to insist on the gospel. You need to insist that people believe the gospel. You need to insist that people understand the gospel. You need to insist that people are not trying to be saved by another gospel that actually won't do anything. He's saying, Titus, you need to preach the gospel and help people understand that there's nothing in and of themselves. There's no good works that they could do that would give them salvation. There's a lot of different doctrinal positions on anything concerning the Bible. There's some things that may not make a whole lot of difference. There's some things in the Bible that we can disagree on. We can still go to the same church. We can still be friends. But the gospel is something we must agree on. The gospel is something that we must insist on. The gospel is something that we must preach and preach well. Paul's saying, Titus, I want you to insist on the gospel because when you insist on the gospel, he says, the people of God, those who believe in God, would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice Paul's understanding of the gospel and the relationship of the gospel and works. There's many people who think that our works lead to salvation that our good works lead to some kind of favor or righteousness with God. <clears throat> but salvation is first and foremost, not by any works of righteousness that we could do. It is a free gift from God. But in the same manner, in the same token, Paul is telling us that because we've been saved, because we're Christians, because God has done this for us, that salvation should lead to good 
works. Good works don't lead to salvation, but salvation will lead us to good works. James says, faith without works is dead. Paul says in Ephesians that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works do not lead to salvation, but salvation will always lead to good works. And so he says, I want you to insist on these things so that people would be devoted to good works. This type of drive, this type of devotion is only going to come from people who are focused on the gospel, who are focused on what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so my question for you, first of all, this morning is, what is your motivation to do good? Do you think that your works will earn you any type of righteousness with God? Are you sitting here thinking that the good that you do in life is going to give you more favor with God? You could do all the good in the world. You could be universally recognized as a good and gracious person. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, then you'll still be separated from him forever. In Psalm 130, verse 3, it says, If you, O Lord, should not mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What the psalmist is saying is if God was keeping score, we would all lose. If he kept track of our sins, after they've been forgiven, none of us could be righteous before God. But we're saved by grace through faith. Do you remember this in your life? Do you cherish this? So why do we do good works? Because it's what we've been created to do. Because we are his workmanship and we as believers have been created. We've been put here to do good works. There's many people, and I'm not saying this is always wrong necessarily, but there's many people in life who insist that they're doing good to try to be a good testimony. I'm going to do this good thing to try to be a good testimony or to share the gospel with someone because I can show them the love of Jesus. And that's a good motivation. That's not always bad. But what do you do when no one is looking? What do you do when no one is watching you? Do you still do good works then? What do you do when maybe it isn't an opportunity to share the gospel? What do you do? What kind of good works do you do for the person that you've shared the gospel with over and over and over again and they're not listening and they're not responding and they're not obeying? Do you still love them? Do you still do good for that person? Well, why do we do good works? Why do we love and encourage them? Because it's what we've been told to do. Because we're devoted to good works, because we're people of good works. I'm all about witnessing to others, sharing my testimony with others, trying to show other people the love of the gospel. But friends, this should be our nature. We should be people who have goodness flowing out of us. We should want to share the gospel with others, but we shouldn't miss the fact that we do good works because we have had good done for us. We do good works because they're the right thing to do no matter how many people are watching and no matter what impression it's going to make on them. We do them because it pleases God and it's what God would have us to do. So we say, I'll serve this person despite what their attitude is towards me despite whether or not they even 
come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. We pray for that, obviously, but we still serve them. We still love them. We pray for them. We encourage them because it is what God would have us to do. Secondly, what does it mean to be devoted to good works? It means to look for opportunities to do good. I wrote the wrong blank in the format in the bulletin. So if you're trying to figure out how to make that fit into your blanks in the bulletin, it's not going to. So uh, look for opportunities to do good. Look with me at the rest of verse 8. He says, I want you to insist on these things. I want you to insist on the gospel. I want you to insist on a saving knowledge of Christ, on understanding the right relationship between good works and salvation. I want you to insist on those things so that those who have believed in God, well, who is that? That's believers. So that all who are believers, either locally in your church or in other churches as well, might be careful to devote themselves to good works. What does it mean to be careful to devote yourself to good works? The word means to literally give concern or thought to something. You're thinking about it often or continually. It could mean that you're careful, you're trying to represent the name of Christ well, so you're thinking about what you're doing, you're trying not to mess it up, you're trying to keep it on your mind. There's plenty of people who are not careful in how they do good works, who are not watchful when they do things and they hope that they are good. There's plenty of people in life who do things and maybe they don't think about what they're doing and so they end up hurting the name of the gospel more than helping it. But rather this word careful has more than just this idea of watchfulness, but it has this idea of a anticipation or a looking for opportunities to do good for others. You're continually thinking, how can I help this person? How can I be a blessing to them? What are opportunities that I have to do good for others? You see, there's plenty of times when myself included, probably myself foremost, think that I need to do good between the nine to five of life, when I'm on the clock, when I'm supposed to, when I'm at church, when I'm in my office hours, when I'm teaching. Those are the times that I should do good, when it is convenience, when it's what everyone would expect me to do. How would everyone expect me to act? When oftentimes, the times when we can help others, the times when you can share the gospel with someone, the times when you can encourage someone, the time when you, when you can really be a blessing to someone, they happen outside of the normal rhythm of life. They happen at times that are inconvenient. I heard somebody talking about ministry and I think I asked them or someone else asked them, well, how's ministry going? They said, ministry is great except for the people. <laughs> and if you know anything about ministry, you know that ministry is dealing with people, right? Oftentimes, opportunities to do good happen when we don't want them to. During times when we've scheduled a day off to finally relax or work on something or clean the yard, 
They happen when we've had a long day and we're ready to just watch TV or just relax and not focus on anything else. That's when someone needs your help. That's when someone needs to talk. That's when you need to give someone encouragement. Are you looking for opportunities to do good? Are you ready and able and fit to do good works? When I interned at the church in Virginia that I entered at a couple weeks, years ago, um, when I would play basketball with the pastor and his sons. We'd play outside on this little hoop, and some kids from the neighborhood would come. Now, we only played half court, but after each game, I would need to kind of sit down and take a breather, you know, and I'm still gasping for air as, you know, we're taking a rest between the games. And the pastor would always talk to these neighborhood kids, and he would talk to them about their life and what they're into and things like that. And I never thought too much of it because I'm still trying to get oxygen to my head from playing basketball that whole time. And there was one night, I remember this really well, that I was sitting there and I was hot from playing basketball. And I knew that just 100 feet away was that nice cold house where we would go in and we could relax and have some nice water. But the pastor just kept talking to this kid just and would not stop. And, I'm, and I thought, we just need to, you know, it's, the game's over. We just need to go inside. And I couldn't figure out, I couldn't even hear what he was talking to him about. He was sharing the gospel with him. You know, I don't even remember if that kid made a profession of faith. I don't think he ever did come back to church. We saw him a couple more times. But I remember something well about that pastor, that he was always looking for opportunities to help others, to share the gospel, to do good works. He's always looking... How is God arranging things? How is God situating him to do good for others around him? Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel with others to do good? If you are, then you're part of building a healthy church. You're part of what it means to live in sound doctrine. You're a faithful blessing to our church family here. Notice the last section of verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, the good works, they are excellent and profitable for people. These good works are first called excellent. It means they have intrinsic value or usefulness. They're also called profitable. It means they provide some kind of gain or assistance for someone. As one writer said, they are, there is good in these things or in these good works. There is good both for those who perform them and for those who receive them. There's good for the person who is receiving these actions and there's good for the ones who are doing them. I had one pastor say when he was talking about witnessing others, he said, in witnessing, God gets the glory, others get the benefit, and we get the joy. Now, we obviously know that God is sovereign over salvation, but there is joy that comes from seeing other one, someone else come to Christ. There's joy that comes from helping, from encouraging others around us. There's joy that comes from doing good works. Paul says they are profitable. Paul says they're not useless, but they are valuable. Do you see the benefit of 
doing good works. Do you see the value of helping others? Maybe it's just a small part of your day. Maybe it's something that you didn't think meant that much, but a word of encouragement, a phone call to someone else who's been struggling, a text message to someone else who's been sick to see how they're doing could make all the difference for them. These things can be profitable. They can be excellent. We know, again, God's sovereign, that he'll work in their lives despite us sometimes, but we can be part of God's plan, of God's help for those people. Friends, are you looking for opportunities to do good for those around you? I can't tell you how many times I've sat there knowing there's something good I should do, and I've been unwilling to do it. Are you careful in finding these opportunities? And lastly, do we recognize that the good we do is motivated by the gospel, but it's not a way to earn favor with God? We do these things because the greatest work has already been done for us in salvation. If we're going to be devoted to do good works, we must focus on the gospel. We must look for opportunities to do good. And thirdly, we must avoid being divisive. We must avoid being divisive. There are people who contribute to a healthy church. There's people who contribute to living in sound doctrine. And then there's people who stand in the way of that. And they are these people who are divisive. Look at what Paul writes. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. To avoid means to go around something, to miss them on purpose. We often think of this by avoiding traffic, avoiding a wreck, trying to go the wrong way or trying to go a different way so that you've purposely missed something. A couple years ago, I was driving in eastern Iowa, and I was on one of those dirt country roads. We have plenty of them around here where you can barely fit two cars on there if you need it to pass someone, but... It's pretty much just big enough for your car, but there's not a lot of cars that go on it. And I look and I thought, there's something in the middle of the road, but I didn't know what it was. And I thought, well, surely it'll move. It'll be gone by the time I get there. And I looked and it was a cow. And the cow was standing there in the middle of the road. And I honked at it and I yelled at it and I got out and that cow would not move at all. And I thought, I do not want to have to turn my car around. I was driving a truck at the time. I thought, it's going to take me like 10 minutes to turn my truck around to try to go the other way to avoid this cow. Surely this cow will move. Well, the cow didn't move. So I had to turn my car around and go all the way around the other way just to avoid that cow. I tried driving closer to it. It wasn't going anywhere. Paul says there are things we should avoid. What are they? First of all, foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. The word for foolishness here is where we derive our word for moron. In Greek, it's moros. It's where we get our word for moron. It means to literally be stupid or to be idiotic. That didn't come from me. That came from a lexicon. That's literally what it says when you look it up. 
We know that foolishness is the opposite of wisdom in Proverbs. It says foolish controversies. These are disputes. These are the debates. These are things within doctrine, within theology that do not matter. We know, as we've already said, that there's things in the Christian life that matter. The gospel, essential doctrine, the word of God knowing that it's inspired. There's plenty of things within the Bible that matter. There's plenty of other things within doctrine that are important. There are plenty of other things in doctrine that we can have different opinions on, but maybe they will vary. And then there's some things just within the Bible that are fun to try to dig into and discover, and it's not wrong to do those things. It's not even wrong to have different opinions on things that may not change your gospel or may not decide whether or not you go to the same church there are plenty of things within scripture that we can disagree on and still go to the same church what paul is saying here when we let controversies that don't matter when we let these debates on things that are really useless when we let those divide us when we let those cause huge issues within our church he says they're foolish he says they are idiotic he says we should avoid them What is Paul talking about? Well, I think he's going to give us some examples in these next couple phrases of things that he is referring to. First of all, genealogies. This is something that's actually, he's mentioned before in the pastoral epistles, both I think in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, to avoid genealogies. Now what he's not saying is that you can not get on Ancestry.com, okay? He's not telling you that you shouldn't get on Ancestry.com and trace your family lineage, okay? Rather, what was going on in that day and age was that Jewish people were tracing their family history back so far to try to see who they were related to so that they could get land promises, so that they could have a stake in what land belonged to them. It was actually something greedy that they were doing for more land or for more power. And Paul's saying you need to avoid this. Paul's saying you need to get away from this selfish ambition. That debates over these things do not matter. Rather, they are foolish. They do not represent the name of Christ well. Thirdly, he speaks of dissensions. This is strife. This is conflict. This is Arguments or quarrels that come up within the church. It's sin that divides people against each other. You know, the devil would love nothing more than for believers to be divided over things that do not matter, for the church to be turned against itself, for everyone to hate one another and not want to work together. And that is why we see churches that split over things like what color the carpet should be or what kind of music they have, or things like that. He says, avoid strife. He says, the church should not be divided into factions, but there should be unity and fellowship within the body. We obviously are concerned with the gospel, and he said that. The saying is trustworthy. We're obviously concerned with understanding what sound doctrine truly is. But there's some things within the life of the church that we should not cause division over. And then lastly, he says, quarrels about the law. 
quarrels about the law. He's speaking here of the law of Moses. And he's saying there shouldn't be any fighting over the law of Moses. These were people who were taking the little intricate parts of the law. We know that the Jewish people, they elevated the law and they had all these little rules that you had to follow and things that you should obey. And they elevated them and they focused on them. And Paul's saying you shouldn't be concerned with that anymore. You should avoid these fights, these quarrels, these disputes over the law. Notice why he says, for they are unprofitable. He said that good works are excellent. They are profitable. They're good for the body of Christ. These things, these controversies, these things are not profitable. They're unprofitable and worthless. They don't bring any gain or value. They have no practical usefulness in the Christian life. They would only lead the believer to further strife and enmity with others. They don't matter in light of eternity. Paul is saying, avoid these things. Paul is saying, don't have anything to do with them. Go the other way. Notice what he says in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, so this person in Greek, it's translated as the factitious person or the person who divides people into different factions. He says, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. This is an interesting command that Paul gives to Titus and Paul gives to the church here. It reminds me, at least, of the process of church discipline. Warning someone once, warning them twice, and then not having anything to do with them anymore. Paul is saying this person who is dividing the church into factions, first of all, Warn him, tell him what he's doing, give him an opportunity, even give him two opportunities to repent over this. And then he says, have nothing more to do with him. Wash your hands of him. Don't allow him to destroy, to disturb your church anymore. Friends, there's people within life that we want to help. We talked about this today in Sunday school. There are those who... Maybe we've confronted on sin who have not repented, who have not been restored, who the church has gone to and said, this is what you've done. You need to repent. We want to restore you back to fellowship with us. And they have refused to repent. We want to share the gospel with those people because we seriously doubt their salvation. We want to show them the love of Christ. But Paul is saying this specific person he says have nothing more to do with and why is that because he would be harmful for the building up of the church there's some people that you want to help there's some people that you want to encourage but they are not beneficial they are not edifying for the body of christ i know people i know kids who have the same bad friends and they say well i'm trying to be a good influence on them i'm trying to help them walk in the right way and you can see it maybe as an adult but those friends are actually causing them to make even worse decisions paul says i have nothing more to do with them why 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. Warped means to be perverted, means to be turned the wrong way. Sinful means to miss the mark or to do iniquity, to be a sinner. This is how this person is described. It says he is self-condemned. His own words, his own self, his own works are what condemns him. Paul says avoid this person. Have nothing more to do with him. Don't let him bring down the body of Christ any longer. Friends, are we committed to not being divided? Are we committed to unity? But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we are not dogmatic on the gospel. That doesn't mean that we aren't committed to sound doctrine. What it does mean is that the things that divide us that shouldn't divide us, we have nothing to do with. It's okay to have disagreements. Everyone is different. But there's some things we all need to realize we need to put to the side when it starts dividing the body of Christ against itself. can't tell you of how many churches we see in our world today who have fights, who have factions, who have divisions over things that do not matter. And friends, they will give an account for that. Avoid divisions. To be a healthy church, to be a church devoted to doing good works, we should avoid divisions. And lastly, notice with me in the last couple of verses, we should be committed. <clears throat> we should be committed. Paul gives us these instructions. We get this little glimpse into things that were going on in the world around Paul and Titus. He first of all says, when I send Artemis or Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. These people were going to take over for Titus, and I don't think it was permanent, but it was for a time so Titus could go and see Paul at Nicopolis. He says, do your best to come to Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. Paul's coming to the end of his life. He's coming to the end of his time, and he wants to see Titus one more time. He says a similar thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy as well, that Timothy would come and visit him one more time as well. He says, do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. It's probable that Zenus and Apollos were the ones who brought the letter to Paul or to Titus. It's probable, it's very likely that they were the ones that were distributing these letters around, at least to Titus, maybe to others as well. So, Titus, so Paul says to Titus, speed them on their way. Make sure they don't lack anything. So why do we have this in our scripture? Why do we need, what value does this have to us today? There's no one named Apollos or Zenos in our church that we need to send on their way. I'm taken back by this, that these men were devoted to gospel ministry. We don't know much of Artemis. He's only mentioned here in Titus. We know that Tychus, who's mentioned in a couple of other passages in Scripture, that he was a faithful worker of Paul. We, know, we don't know anything of Zenos, the lawyer, but we know that Apollos was someone who was um, 
a follower of Christ. He had a misunderstanding of baptism and the baptism of John in Acts 18. But Aquila and Priscilla showed him a more excellent way. And so we see these little greetings and we see these instructions that Paul gives Titus. And in one sense, a lot of times we ignore them. We don't do anything with them, but I'm struck by the commitment of these men to the gospel. I'm struck by their passion, just knowing all of them and what they were doing for the gospel of Christ. And notice what he says in verse 14. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. He's talked all this time of good works and what it means to do good works in the church. And now he says, once again, to be devoted to good works, to have a people who are devoted to good works so that they could be helpful, so that they would not be unfruitful, but so that they themselves would be beneficial. Why should we be devoted to good works? Why should we be committed to good works so that we're not called unfruitful, so that we're not called unprofitable. But as Paul says, so that we can help in cases of urgent need, so that we can help those who truly need it. He ends the letter by saying, all who are with me send greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. As Paul ends this letter to Titus, as he wraps up this list of instructions for this church, he reminds him to teach the people how to be devoted to good works. He gives them final greetings, and he sends others on their way. As we wrap up the book of Titus, I want to think of some of the things we've talked about in the book with some final questions. Titus is a short, wonderful book of the Bible. Maybe you're like me when I started studying Titus. I never knew there was this much in such a short book, a book that gets so overlooked sometimes. But as we close, I want to consider these questions. First of all, do you live in harmony with biblical leadership? What does it mean to be part of a healthy church? What does it mean to build a healthy church means having qualified elders living in harmony with them. Do you support the leadership here at this church? Do you keep them accountable? Do you hold them to the standards that God has given them? Secondly, do you condemn false teaching? Do you look at the teaching of others and do you call it out for what it is? Do you condemn false teaching? Thirdly, do you serve God in whatever capacity he has called you to? Do you serve God in whatever capacity he's called you? Some of us are older. Some of us are younger. All of us have different backgrounds, different places in life. Some married, some single, some widowed, some divorced. God understands that. Are you serving God in whatever capacity he has called you to? Are you motivated by grace? Do you recognize the saving grace of God in your life, in salvation? 
Do you recognize that that grace is training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? That grace came in the gospel, but grace doesn't leave us as we are, but it continues to work in our lives and help us become more like Christ. Fifthly, do you understand the truth of the gospel? Do you understand what the gospel says about you and who you are in Christ? And then lastly, do you live in the world doing good works? Are you faithful to be part of this community, part of this world, not acting like the world, but living in the world, doing good works? God be praised when we as followers of Jesus Christ are faithful to do these things, are faithful to live like the church of God and like we've been commanded to do in Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth you have given us in it. God, we thank you for your servant Paul and his truths that he's given us in the book of Titus and the Holy Spirit that you used to inspire Paul as he wrote. God, help us as we continue to grow as a church, as we continue to seek to be faithful in our community around us. God, help us to live as a healthy church together. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.